0: Turning back in the Word of God today into the book of 1 Samuel, the chapter 7, and probably no points gained here for guessing what verse we're going to go to, and that is verse 12. Up until yesterday, we weren't going here at all or anywhere close. So we'll see. 1 Samuel, the chapter 7, and the verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and settled between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. We have been hugely helped is our topic, therefore, today. Let's bow together in a further word of prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, again, we call upon thy name. We are in need of thee. We need thy Holy Spirit to breathe upon the book. Lord, if we come here, just go through a routine, follow a ritual, a pattern, no matter how familiar that pattern may be, and if we go out, not having had God speak to our hearts, then we have lost much. And so we pray, speak to me, speak through me, speak by thy Spirit unto all hearts who are here today, those tuned in as well over the internet, may they know thy help in concentration and the touch of blessing upon their own heart and mine. Lord, we pray for our land. We have thought about the land of Israel here in the Bible reading. And days when ground was lost. Days when the enemy prevailed. Days when the Philistines held sway over the country. And Lord, we pray that the Philistines in our day will be similarly defeated as to what they were in the days here of Samuel, that thy people will be delivered, will be right on track again, and will enjoy God's intervention of grace. Do that, we pray, for thy glory, for the huge betterment of this land, for mending broken Belfast, and all of the towns and villages around. In our Savior's name, we ask these things. Amen. At the great American exhibition, the year 1862, there was an impressive and beautiful statue unveiled, and they called it The Wept of Wishton Wish. Wishton Wish was actually a valley where the old Puritans settled when they left Holland and England and felt pretty much forced out of there because they hadn't the freedom to worship God in the way that they wanted. And over they went to the vast and largely undiscovered expanse of the continent of America. The wept one featured here in the statue was stolen by North American Indians from her English parents when she was little more than an infant. After living for some considerable time among the Indians, she became pretty used to their ways. In fact, she began to share their intense hatred of the white people who had taken their land, settled in America, and on many occasions done terrible things to them. She carried the bow, she used the scalping knife, she adopted the customs of the people that now she was part of, and that was until things turned full circle. And eventually she was taken captive and brought to the home of one of the English families. The mother in that household on one occasion broke out into the words of a song that she sang to all of her children when they were growing up as young people in the home. And it was then when she heard the words of that song that the eyes of the new captive widened, tears of great emotion swelled up in her heart, the memories of long forgotten years were reawakened within her, and she discovered upon inquiry that she was actually back in her own original home memories awakened it is so good to remember that are still to be back home We'll find as we read the Word of God that the Lord always told His people so many times to remember His former acts in previous generations, what He had done for His people. And He told them to remember for very good reason. For example, remember your deliverance from bondage. He was always reminding them of that. Look back to Egypt. Think of how the Lord led you and emancipated you in that time. And so in Exodus 13 and 3, remember this day, in which ye came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Then he tells them in the book of Leviticus chapter 26 verse 45 to remember the covenant of grace that he had made with his people then but I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors remember as well as we regularly are reminded each Lord's day in fact Exodus 20 the verse 8 remember the Sabbath day to keep holy, and then remember also the nature and the tactics of the enemies that will be around you The reminder comes in Deuteronomy 25 and the verse 17, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. And then also, for our benefit and the lifting of our hearts and our minds, remember, we're told to do that when we're cast down and is there a child of God who at some stage in life doesn't become cast down? No, there isn't. Psalm 77 verse 10 verse 11 bring us to remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will, the psalmist says, remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old, and having cast our mind back to what God did for us, was able to do for us, how he delivered us in the past when we are forlorn and feeling forsaken and cast down again, well, we can rely on him to help us turn the corner once more. We're told to remember the Lord in our early years. Famous text in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil day has come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And then, spreading itself like an archway over all of these remembrances, let's remember fundamentally this fact. Isaiah 46 and 9 articulates it, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. He is the only one, the only one who can help us. Now, all of these prompts to remember are coming very much in a day when many people in different areas are telling us, forget, forget, forget. Draw a line under that. Act as though it didn't happen. Make it ancient history. Move on. Get up to date. Modernize. And the whole ecumenical movement for years has been going on that basis. Forget the past. Forget the freedom you enjoyed. Forget how it was when you were under bondage to the devil and sin and delusion back then. Forget those dark days. Whenever you struggle to find a gospel preacher and you flock to go and find where the Word of God was being properly sounded out, forget, going back further, the Protestant Reformation, what it brought to Europe and beyond. Forget the Bible and forget its doctrines. Let's grow up. Let's go forward. Let's become liberal. Let's modernize. Let's get with the times. Let society, not Scripture, dictate how we behave and where we go. God, still with all of that, insists, remember. Remember what bondage to the enemy is like. Remember how good the Lord is. Remember, you'll not find a way of pleasantness and peace along the ecumenical route, but only along the route of fidelity to the cause and to the commandments of Jehovah. If you're ever in Israel and around Jerusalem, I'm sure you'll want to visit Yad Vashem, the Jewish National Memorial to the Holocaust. And these startling, impressive words are printed largely there. Forgetfulness leads to exile, while remembrance is the secret of redemption. And with Six million of their number slaughtered in Hitler's maniacal purges. No wonder the modern Jew is still crying out and holding on to this theme for remembrance. And his demand is right. And it's of infinite importance that we remember what the Lord has done and give Him all the glory for it. That we, like Israel, do here in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 12, we lift up our own Ebenezer stone of memorial, and we cry in united testimony, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Have we not good reason to do that? As good a reason as Israel had? You'll find here the Lord, first of all, had led them on to a new experience on old ground. It led them to a new experience on old ground, like that little girl coming home. She was back in the old ground again, but I knew things were going to be. There had been a reclamation of the blessing. This ground that we're reading about in First Samuel chapter 7, it had belonged to Israel, but they had lost it some 20 years before in a battle with the Philistines. It's just north. Eight miles or so north of the city of Jerusalem. And round the Mizpah area, it became very fortified, fortified under Asa, one of the later kings of Judah. Then whenever the Babylonians came in and took over the nation, they made Mizpah, their big center of operations in defending against the ravages of others, defending the city of Jerusalem. So Mizpah became a very important place. And it was important here, but it had slipped through the fingers of the children of Israel because, well, that was when Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, had been killed. That was when the ark of God had been taken. That's when 30,000 Israeli footmen had been killed. And that's where the term Ichabod was born and inscribed over the national life. In First Samuel 4 and 21, we read, Ichabod, the glory is departed from Israel. And it was a shameful thing. And because of all the sin in the land, and there was suffering because of all that happened there as well. In fact, some terrible events followed hot on the heels of Israel's defeat at the hand of the Philistines back then. We have, for example, Eli, the high priest of Israel, fell back of a stool, broke his neck, dead. His daughter-in-law conceived that child that was named Ichabod, so great was her feeling of grief. And those were only some of the immediate events that followed defeat. Think of what happened over the next 20 years. The men of Israel, they were reduced from their proud, dominant status to those who were now the slaves to the Philistines in their own countries. Their liberties were taken away. Their land, their family inheritance was grasped from them, put under the control of the Philistine invaders. Their harvests were plundered. Think of the days of Gideon when harvests were ravaged then. And right through the days of the judges, when the Philistines would have attacked and manipulated and monopolized the Israelite harvest, their persons in Samuel's day were abused. Their name became a byword. And for 20 whole years, this once powerful nation that God had raised up, put his name upon, shed his favor abroad upon them. They were now trodden down. They were ripped apart. They were ravaged. They were beaten. They were plunged in Into deep and depressing sorrow all under the savage blues of their most bitter and belligerent enemy, nevertheless. After God had graciously kept that nation alive, kept the pulse beating within it even though it was weak through those twenty years, what God did was he brought it back to this area where the suffering had stemmed from. And now Israel, in delight to what the Lord had done, they decided there's nothing more fitting than raising a stone of memorial here, a testimony to God's grace. And we read then Samuel took a stone. 1 Samuel 7 and 12, and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. What had been an awful defeat in that territory was now turned around into an outstanding deliverance. God led the people into complete victory on the very ground where they had known frustration and failure and bitterness and bondage in the past. That is one of the things that God does. And He did it, of course, for our denomination 70-plus years ago. He lifted it up from its feet, from the ground of defeat, when the ecumenical movement was moving at full steam and people were fawning over it. He brought them out of an Egypt experience where they hadn't heard, in many cases, a clear presentation of the gospel message for years. He injected courage and backbone and boldness and determination and strength and grace into their souls that got them against no doubt the wishes and the persuasion of their family. This is a family church. It's traditional that we go here. You can't possibly leave if you throw your lot in with that mob. They're a bunch of rabble risers. Well, he got them out of apostasy and out of ecumenism to step out of the camp of modernism and liberalism and to kneel their colors to the mask for the Lord Jesus Christ outside the camp would have been a keynote back then, and he brought them victory in the place of former defeat. What kind of a time was it then? I mean, what was the atmosphere that prevailed in many of the mainline churches? Well, it was a day of compromise, a day of betrayal, a day of defeat as well, a day of backsliding, a day of turning your back upon the Bible and what it plainly said, and to reinvent, and to reinterpret and to dissemble and deceive. To quote Jeremiah 7, the verse 28, but thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished, and is cut off from their mouth. And so back then, false prophets. The Word of God, and that was symbolized back here in 1 Samuel 7, that was symbolized here in Israel's defeat by the removal of the Ark of the Covenant. The Word of God was replaced by philosophy and replaced by newspaper headings. It had come under attack from rationalist ministers buoyed up by the subtle weapon of the new Bible versions they had sucked in all of the poison of German rationalism that was against the Bible that was saying, well, you know, you can't really believe all of the Bible because there's myth and there's fable, and you have to understand and discern where the myth is, where the fable is, and maybe there's facts somewhere. Well, there will be, but we need to demythologize the Bible and get to where the facts are and all of the rest of it. And they're telling you like the old priest did, we are the ones to shine the light on it and tell you what is right and what is wrong and what you can believe and what you shouldn't. And what the child of God all along is meant to do is Acts 17, search the Scriptures daily. Read the Bible for himself. Cross-reference, check out all that he hears from any pulpit by what the Scriptures say themselves. And God's presence back then had been chased out of churches by compromise. And all you had left was an empty shell of ceremony. It was a day when the Irish Presbyterian Church For so long, it had been a lighthouse of truth. Many, many times it had been a channel of revival, fire, and power in our nation, but that church had buckled at the knees, and it was being swept along and eaten out by a strong fifth column of unconverted, infidelistic clerics within the ranks. And I suppose the most infamous of those was Professor James Ernest Davies. To say that he uttered more than one blasphemous statement would be the understatement of the century. But he was defended during a trial for heresy in 1927, and then he was elevated to the position of moderator of that church in 1953. What did he say? He said that modern scholarship has rescued the church from the powerlessness of a propped-up religion using the Bible as a crutch. He said the Jewish view was that Jesus was the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary, and I accept that view. Jesus, he said, had a downward tendency, which our forefathers would call original sin, but which we would call the dregs of evolution. God the Father said he is without sin. He is sinless and spotless. He said as well, this is J.E. Daving, there are hundreds of discrepancies and direct contradictions in the whole Bible. He said that an omnipotent, an omniscient Christ makes Gethsemane and Calvary play-acting. He said there are parts I do not accept in the book of Revelation. Well, that applied to many other books as well. Then he said there was a time But I held the views of the fundamentalists, but I came to know that modern views were not only truer, but more helpful. And so those are breaking away and out of the Irish Presbyterian Church in 1927, the year of the trial, and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church was founded then under the leadership of James Hunter and W.J. Greer. The Free Presbyterian denomination rose under God's almighty hand later in the year 1951, whenever the Compromise had deepened even more. Two years before, J.E. Davy became moderator of the Irish Presbyterian Church in our articles of faith drafted back then, we were nailing our colors to the mast, and we were saying this is what we're for, the absolute authority and divine inspiration of the Old Testament and New Testament as the Word of God. There is but one living and true God, and in the Godhead there are three persons, equal in power and glory, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We were for the eternal sonship. This was where the battleground was, the virgin birth, the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We as well were articulating this Bible teaching about the personality of God the Holy Spirit and the absolute necessity of His work in regeneration and sanctification and His infilling of the indwelt believer for power to live and witness for Christ. And we were also teaching the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection as the only way of salvation from sin through faith. And guess what happened? The sword of the Spirit won the day and took ground that had been formerly occupied by the modernist and by the infidel. The enemy was stricken with fear and ran for shelter. Those were days of victory. And they were accomplished on the ground of former defeat. And we lift up the memorial, and we say about those times, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Well, is there still a reason for the Free Presbyterian Church to be around? And other fundamental Reformed Bible fellowships to be around as well. Our church is not becoming more evangelical and more biblical around us. Well, look at what happened this week the Church of England voted to welcome and command plans to allow churches to bless same-sex partnerships when it came to the bishops, and there were three layers to the vote. But the bishops, key controllers there, 36 to 4, voted in favor of this obnoxious thing. Not only that, they're considering and I emphasize that's what they say, they are considering only at the moment gender-neutral pronouns for God. And when you see this kind of material floating about in the religious world, then you're thinking there is a need for a strong stand still to be taken for the Lord. Days of victory need to be achieved on ground of former defeat, but let's not delude ourselves. We don't have the strength that we have back in 1951. We don't have the kind of influence that we had in years beyond that as well. We haven't quite turned full circle, and we're thankful for that. We are not embracing heresy, but we haven't got the cutting edge we possessed. And if we think we have, then we are deluding ourselves We have made wrong decisions. We have gone in wrong directions. The tide of blessing is manifestly out. Church attendances are falling, and not just in the liberal modernistic churches, but in our churches too. We are losing ground. That is fact. And before a further plunge, we need revival. We need God to work and move in our churches once again. And we need to be praying. But we move on here because we'll be on praying ground in a moment or two because we've looked at the reclamation of the blessing. We're moving to the route to the blessing. And so this is Israel coming back, reoccupying ground that they'd lost, putting the flag and the ensign and standard on that territory the Philistines had dominated for 20 years. What were the leading features of this route to blessing? In fact, what were the milestones along the path? by which they eventually reclaimed victory. Well, number one, sorrow. might seem a little incongruous and even slightly depressing to start here, but that's where we must always start. Sorrow. First Samuel chapter 7 verse 2, look at what it tells us. It informs us all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The word is a strong, exceptionally strong one means a wheel that came right out of their heart. It wasn't just something, you know, prattling about, form of words, saying things to sound good and all of that, to make an impression around. This was something they felt intensely within their heart. And that intense feeling within gave rise to this wheel that came out to prove the genuineness of this lament. Samuel brought a test to the nation of Israel here, and the test was: Well, okay, if you are wanting to property change, then have done with the false gods. Get rid of the base idols you've been serving through the years of this sinful course that you've been on. And you can check out the details from verse three through to the verse six of first chapter of first Samuel chapter seven. And we're told then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. And they said, we have sinned against the Lord. You've got a very solemn scene here, a scene of great and general and genuine repentance, a scene when dry eyes and calm breasts were a rarity. So with The axe is lifted and the hammer is taken and it's brought down crashing on those little images and statues. Those wooden and those stone deities of Baal and Ashtaroth and there they are reduced to splinters and little piles of powder with inward paint. The Israelites mourn the days of their departure from the one true Jehovah, and with determination they decide we are setting our faces towards God alone again. There was a touching of the heart and a moving of the feet in repentance. So it began with sorrow. That was the first milestone on the way back. The second step was that of supplication. If you look at verse 8 and verse 9 of the chapter, And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord for us, and he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. You know what old John Bunyan said was absolutely nail on the head, spot on. Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And that is absolutely true. That counsel still holds good. Israel were aware of that. And so when this fear of the Philistines gripped their heart and their transgressions piled up before them, they went to this unstoppable, unanswerable weapon that was prayer, Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord for us. Seventy years ago plus this church felt that because it was born in prayer. And oh, to be in such ground as Samuel was here whereby the nation could come to him and say, Samuel, pray for us. And oh, to continue earnest in prayer until our battles have been won. So we have a season of sorrow and supplication, also of sacrifice. When Israel requested that prayer should be offered by Samuel to the Lord on their behalf, Samuel, yes, he did pray, but notice that he was very careful to offer that prayer on the grounds of the shed blood of the Lamb. Where do we find that? 1 Samuel 7 and 9. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering wholly unto the Lord. And when he offered the lamb, shed the blood, then, then, and only then did he begin to pray. God could not be approached unless the blood of that sacrificial lamb had flowed. But as soon as the lamb was offered on the altar, the blood streamed down over the sides of the altar. The savor of its burning reached up to heaven. The blessing of Almighty God began to descend upon the Israelites and to the confusion and to the right of their enemies His power came. Very useful to pay attention to the name of the area that the Israelites smote the Philistines too. At the end of verse 11, we're told it was to Beth-car. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Beth-car. Beth-car means the house of the Lamb. So here's the picture. Samuel's offering up the burnt offering. Victory is achieved. And they're hounding and chasing the Philistines, their enemy, right up until the place known as beth Car, the house of the Lamb, from the altar to beth Car, from the place where the Lamb was on the altar to the house of the Lamb, Israel triumphed over her enemies. What's that saying? As long as she kept upon the ground of the blood, she was victorious. The victory was transcribed and circumscribed by the boundaries of blood. And away back in the 50s and the 60s, what we had in many a pulpit would have been a bloodless gospel. It wasn't fashionable anymore to preach the penal substitution of Jesus Christ, the blood atonement for our sins. And we had bloodless hymn books that were being rewritten at that particular time, but we had a fellowship and in form. In fairness of the Irish Evangelical Church and then off the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, we had denominations that decided we are going to stand upon redemption ground. We're going to plead the merits of Jesus Christ and His blood. We're going to extol and lift up to the nation the Lamb of God. And they were tapping into the truth that we have in Revelation, the verse Nine through to the verse 11 of Revelation chapter 12. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent, how was he cast out? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You know, it's always this way. Victory only comes to our lives, personally, individually, nationally, congregationally, through the blood of the Lamb, precious blood. By this we conquer in the fiercest fight, sin and Satan overcoming by its might. And I'm asking you, child of God today, are you pleading? the value and the virtue of Jesus' blood today. Are you taking your stand upon redemption ground? Are you rel- relying on it for the slaughter of your sins, for fighting your foes, for triumphing over every temptation and tribulation? There's nothing so powerful as the blood that flows from Calvary's lamb. In Revelation seventeen fourteen, we have this record. They shall make war with the lamb but the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Another milestone, sovereignty. Look at verse 10 in 1 Samuel chapter 7. God's sovereignty is emphasized there. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. They were smitten before Israel, underline the words, the Lord thundered. They could rattle about all they wanted with whatever military weaponry they had, but that would have made little difference and would have been of no consequence. The Lord was the one that won the battle for them. We have the sacrifice ascending. We have the supplications ascending. And we have God descending to this earth, clothed in the garments of his omnipotent power. And he speaks the word of sheer irresistible might. And where are those pride enemies of the Israelites now who had held them captive for 20 years? Where is their corrupt connection of false gods and idols now, disgraced, demoralized, defeated, destroyed? The psalmist said in Psalm 98 and 1, Sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. And after every spiritual success, we have that obligation on us to remember. It's the Lord who has brought this about. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Another feature of the season here that was worthy of note was submission. You see it in verse 4 submission. It makes it clear there in 1 Samuel 7, 4, that Israel gave up their idols, prepared their hearts before the Lord, vowed to serve Him only. It was an act of submission. Interesting point here. The names, we're into Bible names this morning more than usual, but the name Mizpah means watchtower. Shen means a tooth. 1 Samuel 7 and 12 then, then Samuel took a stone set up between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer. So, with the watchtower and with the tooth here assembling in these two places, what are they doing here? They are recutting. They are vowing again their former covenant. They are pledging themselves again to the service of God. were going to serve him only. That was their vow. And they were going to wait for him, as if they're on a watchtower. Wait for him, rising up, batting on their behalf. After a time of national sin and degeneracy, Habakkuk said in chapter 2 of his prophecy, the verse 1, I will stand upon my watch, set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. That was submission. I sin scupper submission. Crushes into, crushes our consecration to the service of Jesus. Let's forget about dragging our feet. Let's forget about marking time. Let's get up, let's get out, and let's serve our Lord. That's the challenge. I was interested to read an article that Dr. Paisley printed in The Revivalist back in 1951. And he said, among other things, may God send an alarm abroad amongst us today. How we sleep, the souls are damned. How we lisp, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Christian, you are tolerating things which defy and disturb and eventually damn. Half measures are bound to fail in God's name, my brother, my sister, for the sake of a lost world. Awake and get going for God. Notice finally here, the reclamation of the blessing, the root to that blessing, the recognition... The recognition of the blessing, there was a necessity now for a memorial. Just as Joshua, when he led Israel over the Jordan, said, we're going to have a heap of stones here. That'll be constructed for the benefit of people coming after us. When future generations of Israelites say, well, what's that heap of stones about? What's that monument all about? They'll be able to say, well, it's what God did. We put it up as a memorial to his power and intervention on our behalf. And so Samuel here, 1 Samuel seven twelve. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shem, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us one of those greedy ancient landmarks. What does it do? It recalls what is fact. Ebenezer means a stone of help. And so, what we have here is a big signpost, put in the nation, pointing backwards to the day when God showered His mercy upon us. Seventy years, trials, disappointments, people coming, people going, but still we look back to days when God revealed His right arm and sent his blessing, and can we not say in our own lives with numberless blessings each moment he cries, and filled with his fullness divine, I sing in my rapture, O glory to God for such a Redeemer is mine. Is that not your testimony? It should be. It has to be. As we look back over the history what God did in Belfast, what He did in Northern Ireland, what He did far beyond our shores, then surely we can write over the testimony of what God did these words, Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord helped us, and we praise His name today for that. It recalls what is fact, but here's what encourages me even more. It does respect what is future. There's more to this text in 1 Samuel 7 and 12 than simply a review of former past mercies, though that's necessary and that's wonderful in its own way. But when a person comes to a a point in their experience of their lifetime, and they put the word, not that we use it anymore, but if they would put the word or an equivalent word hitherto up until this point, whatever, on the page of remembrance, what they're saying is, I haven't reached the end of the journey yet. Up until this point, God has been wonderfully gracious to me. But it's not over. There is still a distance to be traveled. I think of Joshua again in Joshua 13 and 1. Now, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Joshua! More deep valleys, more high mountains, more tumbling rivers are to be traversed by you. More troops of the tyrants fought against, more powers of evil to contend with, more battlefields to march out onto, and victories to be claimed. And he would have said, "While well, his grace has brought me safe thus far. His grace will take me home. And the same for us. And I trust that we can pray on that the best will yet be for this congregation. Didn't we hear many, many years ago, the best is yet to be? Dr. Pasey always said that. Yes, hitherto has the Lord helped us, but that help has not been suspended yet. And we need it to flow in like a mighty tide again. His resources have not been used up or drained yet, and they never shall be. I close with the words of W. Winters, Ebenezer, Lord of Mercies. All our thanks to thee are June. Ebenezer, we repeat it. Thou hast helped us hitherto. Grateful are we for thy favours, large and new. Stone of help on life's rough journey. If reclining, rest is sweet. Hitherto shall be our song still. In the realms of bliss we meet. And forever cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. Ebenezer, Lord our Helper, may we still our strength renew till we reach the land of promise, then we'll prove the motto true. Ebenezer, thou hast helped us hitherto. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name today. We have to play catch-up with the footsteps of Israel here under Samuel. We need to retrace our steps, that's for sure. We need a revival in our own hearts and souls, in our congregation, in our denomination, and right across the evangelical world in the United Kingdom. We need the breath of thy Spirit again. Send it, we ask. Do the work, we pray, by thine almighty power. And may we be used in the middle of that as we all do something more for God.